Housing as a human right is a popular sentiment. You get a lot of people to sign on. But as soon as you get to the to the next step, which is there has to be, a, therefore, a right to build at least some types of housing, it's very controversial. <laughs> so it's a little bit, I mean, I guess it, that's how the sausage is made, you know, that you want the outcome. But the sausage part is that you can't just say, oh, yeah, I want there to be housing, but how about on the next block? Because every block feels that way. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Kate Meese, Executive Director of the Local Government Commission. Our regular host, Mike Hancocks, is off today. We are continuing our series of episodes leading up to the new Partners for Smart Growth Conference, which will be held in San Francisco from February 1st through 3rd. New Partners is the nation's largest smart growth conference and uh, largest sustainability event. The program will span three days and will feature a range of topics, including our topic for today, housing. You definitely don't want to miss it, so register at newpartners.org. I believe that the early registration got extended for a couple more weeks. So jump on when you can and go ahead and register. Our guest today is one of our conference speakers. Sonia Tross is the founder of the San Francisco Bay Area Renters Federation, which is an unincorporated club of pro-building, pro-density renters. Sonia, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Sonia, I understand that you started the San Francisco Bay Area Renters Federation in 2012, as a response to what you saw as an anti-growth, anti-newcomer mindset in the California Bay Area. Can you talk about the challenges you've experienced finding affordable housing and how it led you to start this club? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was 2014, actually, but I had been noticing, I mean, obviously, since I got here in 2011, it was evident <laughs> that the Bay was suffering from a housing shortage. I just couldn't believe how even though there was clearly a housing shortage, there was also so much anti-housing feeling, anti-housing advocacy. And of course, being against housing kind of sounds ridiculous, but people really are against housing. And and it goes along with being against, you know, newcomers. And I was just so surprised because I wasn't you know, I'm a citizen of the US, you know, like I couldn't imagine how much worse it might feel if I if I was actually trying to cross, you know, a national border. And I didn't expect that from the Bay Area. So but I, but there were people that agreed with me. You know, we all were kind of in the same boat. Like everyone I knew was paying different amounts of rent, but everyone I knew felt like it was the maximum they could they could afford. Right. So I was paying eight hundred dollars a month, but I was only taking home like two thousand a month. And I was paying off, you know, the debts. It's expensive to move across the country. And I had friends who were paying much more. They had better jobs, but they were also, 
you know, like the, they could pay 3000 a month, but they hated it. I mean, and, and what they were getting for that wasn't what they wanted. And so I just felt like it was kind of an incredible opportunity to unite people who were making a wide range of incomes because of the situation, everybody was suffering in the same way. So we started just going to to um, to neighborhood meetings in neighborhoods we lived in and neighborhoods we didn't live in and planning commission meetings. That was really the thing. Every Thursday afternoon, there's a there's an opportunity for anyone, any resident to go before the planning commission uh, who's, you know, and they're hearing specific projects and say, yes, this project's a good idea because there's always two or three or sometimes 10 or 12 people who think the project's a bad idea because, you know, in order to do it, you have to cut down a tree they like, or they're worried that there's going to be, you know, not enough parking in the new, in the new project. And so people will take up street parking or, you know, shadows is, is a real huge thing in the Bay. Any number of, 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 you know, small, I think, objections compared to the need for housing overall. So I wanted to ask you more about that. So your your group is part of a YIMBY or Yes in My Backyard movement. And that's in reference to the term NIMBY or Not in My Backyard, which has been used by smart growth and housing advocates to paint a picture of, of folks that you're mentioning that are coming out in opposition. It, it has become a fairly derogatory term, but you know that's the idea of people that are coming out and opposing, sometimes for very small concerns, as you've mentioned but also sometimes for larger concerns like increased traffic and impacted schools. So I'm wondering, how do we acknowledge some of those concerns without doing it on the backs of people who need affordable housing? Well, I think that the thing that's sort of tragic about the way public participation is set up, what I've seen over the last couple of years is some people very earnestly coming to planning commission meetings to oppose a project and ask for something like, you know, more transportation, more parks, or more more school capacity. And what I think is very unfortunate is that there are a lot of people who have that sincere, you know, need and desire for, like I said, more parks, transportation, or schools. But there is nobody in the community that is, and, and not, this isn't always true, but it seems like it's more likely that you'll have some community member who will passionately flyer and organize and bring people out and say, come to this meeting, talk about your concerns. And the place that they bring them is the planning commission hearing to oppose new housing. And so everybody goes and makes a speech about the stuff the community needs and they go home and they don't get a new park or a new train or a new school because in order to go to, to get those things, you have to go to the Department of Recreation or you have to go to the school board or you have to go to the, the, the transportation agency and ask for those things affirmatively. But there's no analogous or much less analogous organizing to say, if you guys want to park, we have to go and speak passionately about this at the Department of Recreation you know, several times until we get it. And, you know, I'm not saying that there's none of that. It's just that for whatever reason, I think one thing is it's, it's more motivating and exciting to sort of get together and oppose things. So it just might be, just might be the way like people's personalities are set up. I think that's true. And I, I think fundamentally, a lot of this discussion 
you know, it, it comes down to the reality that people with housing, especially homeowners, have more to lose than gain, at least in their perception. And studies have shown that people have a stronger reaction to loss than gain. So that that could be part of what we're seeing is people are afraid to lose potentially home value or lose their easy, convenient commute or lose, as you said, their tree. So, you know, we need to be able to talk about larger community benefits and amenities and other things that can be gained from this. Yeah, absolutely. I do think it is all about the perception of the neighborhood being ruined or, yeah, or losing something. That's why the the yes, you know, yes in my backyard and going forward this season, we'll be talking a lot about a politics of yes. Um, it really is a very different kind of organizing. And we know that, I mean, for ballot measures, right? It's like when you propose a ballot measure, the default, you know, if there's all things being equal, if there's, if nothing, if there's no campaign on either side, the ballot measures lose, right? Like there is a, the, there's a, sort of bias towards the status quo that just exists. And so that's something that it's fun. I, you know, I really, obviously I love organizing, but that's something that's definitely like an intentional part of the organizing is making people realize that there, that yes has to be part of your, of, of a person's local political involvement, you know, that you want to make sure that you're always spending some time organizing for something and like, don't just look back over your year and be like, oh yeah, every meeting I went to was to oppose something. You're never going to get anything new. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. And fundamentally it comes down to whether we as a society believe that people have the right to housing and we're going to then continue to say yes to housing and, and understand that there may be some trade-offs, but you know, our, our prioritization is to say yes to housing and house people first. Yeah. It is amazing. I mean, housing as a human right is a popular sentiment. You get a lot of people to <laughs> sign on. But as soon as you get to the to the next step, which is there has to be, a, therefore, a right to build at least some types of housing, it's very controversial. <laughs> so it's a little bit, I mean, I guess it, that's how the sausage is made, you know, that you want the outcome. But the sausage part is that you can't just say, oh, yeah. I want there to be housing, but how about on the next block? Because every block feels that way. Right. So let me, let me ask you more about that. So we work a lot with local policymakers and our membership as a smart growth organization, they're generally supportive of affordable housing in areas with existing homes and businesses and near transit. And that's often where opposition is most pronounced. And as you've seen, and I'm sure you understand, it can be difficult for policymakers to go against constituents, even when they're vocal minority. So how can residents and community groups like yours provide those elected officials who want to do the right thing and want to build housing with the backing to support good projects that, as we said, have a lot of benefits associated with them? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really just what you said. I mean, we provide them with the backing by providing them with the backing, you know? So if you, if you are a person in a community and you do think that if there's some particular project that you like, or if you, you know, think that housing in general is a good idea. I mean, a big part, our main part of our organizing, the main part of my organizing initially was kind of giving the same speech over and over to newcomers and to renters and saying to them, you have an address, you know, you live here, you are a voter here, you're a resident. And the decisions that people locally are making, politicians and commissioners affect you. 
And don't let anyone tell you that your opinion doesn't matter. Because what happens is a lot of times people will move in and they'll say, well, I haven't really lived here for that long. I don't really know. If they do go to a meeting, a lot of people will stand up and say, I've lived here for 25 years and therefore blah, blah, blah. You know, so it takes a lot of like encouragement and a little bit of even, you know, sort of deprogramming because that really gives a strong impression that your opinion matters more the longer you've been there. And I don't think that that's right. I mean, logically, the the opposite is true. Really, it's who's going to be there the longest, <laughs> maybe, whose opinion matters the most. But any of that doesn't really matter. I mean, everybody's got an opinion. If there's a public process, then that public process is asking you what you think, you know? And just, I don't think a lot, a lot of people don't realize, one, how accessible their politicians are, that you really can just email them anytime. And that two, the emails can be very casual. You know, I think a lot of people are cowed by the idea like, oh, I have to understand every single thing about this project or it should, this should be like an essay or something like five paragraphs. Like, no, you can just jot off a thing like, hey, I live in your district. I read this article and I just want to tell you what I think, you know? And so it's, it's it's letting people know how accessible their politicians are and how worthwhile it is to email them that they hardly ever get emailed. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think what it's about is really having a representation of a cross section of all residents. And we're not seeing that often because what we're seeing is people who, you know, don't work nights, who can afford right. to go out to evening meetings, who, you know, have the paid lawyers certainly show up, the developers show up, um, the folks that are feeling very strongly one side or the other show up. Uh, it's definitely easier to show up if you don't have multiple jobs and you have a car and you don't need to look for daycare and maybe you're retired. But what we want is really to have a good cross-section of all residents. And I couldn't say more or, or agree more that I don't think people reach out to their policymakers enough or understand how accessible they are. And I'm hoping with the increased civic engagement we've seen at the federal level around the, the new administration, that people will understand that you can have um, more tangible impacts on your daily life at the local level by doing what you're suggesting, showing up to those Thursday meetings. Yeah. Yeah. And there has definitely, since since Trump was elected, I mean, it was it's been... I think probably organizers in all kinds of issues, it's it's been a kind of a dream. I mean, people, our meetings right after the Trump elections were three to five times bigger than they had ever been. You know, all these people who had been maybe on our mailing list, but never really engaging, they showed up, you know, new people sign up to the mailing list. Like people, this coming election year, I think is going to be pretty exciting because I really think that a lot of people are going to dive in and since people do feel really powerless about the federal level, it's much more motivating to get involved locally. And it's so rewarding. I mean, elected officials really are public servants. You know, they really are very impressive people because they they do respond. And it I mean, that is incredibly motivational for like the person who's going from maybe never wrote an email and then writes an email and then they get a response. And I think a lot of times they're really surprised. And then if they write more emails, then they start getting more attention. And, uh, and then that causes them to, you know, become, go from like a letter writer to an organizer. And that's what a lot of, I feel like 
one of the things we've been doing too, that's been really cool over the last three years. I mean, for myself, I was not involved in politics at all before I started this. I wasn't even registered to vote and I was going to planning commission hearings and, you know, testifying, which is a little backwards. I eventually obviously did register to vote, (laughs) but bringing people up that ladder of engagement is something that we've been doing, giving them that experience. And people have really been taking to it because I do think it is rewarding and it's social and it's fun. It's satisfying. Well, and you're, you're looking at engaging on the other side of this as well as running for San Francisco County supervisor. So what changes do you think on the policymaker side can we make to improve the, the speed and scale of affordable housing and to engage the community more? Well, one thing is, which is kind of an answer to your question before, is, you know, changes at the state level are super helpful because, I mean, we've talked to tons of policymakers who, you know, elected officials who understand what the issue is. You know, they they understand that their town needs housing, that new housing needs new taxpayers, that in the long run, the citizens will actually be much more, much happier with the new housing, but their hands are tied with, you know, by, as you said, these uh, sometimes very vocal aggressive minorities. And so they really welcome, even though in public, (laughs) they might not say so, they do welcome a little bit of, you know, a little less discretion uh, handed down uh, from the state level, because then they can say, look, it's out of my hands. I I can't do, there's nothing I can do here. So that is something we have been working on. Locally, we, we have a ballot measure coming up, which is super exciting, where we're actually trying to implement SB 35 and make it a little broader locally, which means... uh, And can you just give a quick overview on SB 375 for our listeners? Yeah, SB 35, it does a lot of things, but the main thing it does, well, for us here locally in San Francisco, is create a ministerial process for affordable housing. And ministerial means by right. So the, the way actually development happens in most of the U.S., if you propose something and it's within the zoning, you don't have to go back to a planning commission or planner and ask permission to uh, to build it because it's already zoned that way. You know, the city already published the zoning code. The city said we want five-story apartment buildings in this part of town. Okay, so why would you go back and, and ask permission again? Well, in a lot of California uh, cities and towns, and definitely in, in San Francisco, frequently you do have to go back and ask again for permission, even when you're within your zoning. So, and that's baked into our city charter right now. And in order to change the charter, we have to have a ballot measure. So we're putting together this ballot measure that would make it so that if your project is going to be affordable to people making 120% AMI or below, or if it's teacher housing, then if it's within the zoning, then you can just basically go right to Department of Building Inspections and get your your health and, you know, your safety, uh, your permits checked just to make sure that it's safe. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to go back to, you don't have to go to the planning commission and ask permission. So that's really, really exciting. And I think that instituting ministerial processes like that. Cities are also supposed to do ministerial processes for accessory dwelling units. Most cities in California have not set that up yet. But as many ministerial processes as you can get, would that would make everything a lot better, I think. 
It's a big policy goal for us. I think a lot of our listeners would be thinking, well, you know, I care a lot about affordable housing. How do I do something similar to this? What allies do I need to to bring on board? And and to that end, you've raised more than a million dollars over the past three years, from my understanding, from benefactors like the Yelp CEO, Jeremy Stoffelman. So what what is his stake in increasing housing and what, and what other types of allies should be considered? His stake is that it's a worker housing issue for him. When I first met him over a year ago, I guess, oh God, maybe two years ago, that was one of the first things he said. He said, most of my employees make less than $60,000 a year. And that has been, you know, people think that like developers must be so excited about us. On a personal level, they're, they are excited, you know, because they build housing and they don't think they're bad people. And it's nice to have some people in the community say, like, stop treating this person like they're poisoning your water. You know, I mean, they're building housing and we need it. As an industry, though, they've been kind of on the sidelines. Like the real money movers have been big employers and, because they need somewhere for their employees to live. And they have all kinds of employees. You know, the hospitals, they have employees that are orderlies and making minimum wage and they have doctors and every single type of employees having trouble finding housing, you know? So they really respond to our message, which is we really need to build every type of housing, but the way to do it, you know, law follows practice. And so the reality is the first step always has to be identifying the people in your community that do think that your community needs more housing Make getting everybody together, you know, so that you meet each other. That's the fun part, really. It's social. Then making yourselves visible, you know, getting a website, start to write letters, make sure your elected officials know you're there, and make sure other community members know you're there because the opponents to housing feel very, very self confident, you know, and self righteous because they so rarely have anyone tell them that, no, you don't speak for this community. You know, they, you hear them all the time. All the, all, every, all the neighbors are against this housing, they go and say. Well, well that's not true. Mo- most of the neighbors don't even know and do not care. 80% of neighbors do not care. <laughs> and then between the last 20%, you know, maybe it's 12% to 8% or something. You know, like who knows? So making yourself visible. And once you start doing that organizing, I mean, what we've found is when I started doing that, everything else sort of, it feels like it's kind of been falling into place because there is, there is so much, there really is so much popular support for new housing. People are really sick of the shortage and there's this institutional support, you know, like big business and workers, we're not always on the same side, but in this case we are. And I don't think there's anything wrong with working together where, where we do both need the same policy changes to occur. Absolutely. And it, it's such an intractable issue and complex issue that we need all the, the allies we can get. And, and we haven't been able to solve it with the traditional allies. So I, I think it makes a lot of sense to start to reach out to some non-traditional allies. So unfortunately, we are out of time, but I want to give you a chance to share where people can find out more about your work. Oh, yes. Come to yimbiaction.org. Um, that's Y-I-M-B-Y. Yes, in my backyard. And then action is just the word. 
also, so Yimby Action is our political nonprofit, right? Where we organize people and weigh in on laws and stuff like that. We also have a legal nonprofit where we enforce the good laws that do exist. And that is called California Renters Legal Advocacy and Education Fund. The website is basically suethesuburbs.org. So if you go there, you'll find that. And that that is really, we didn't even talk about that, but that's actually really exciting stuff too. Uh, and then, yeah, separately, I also happen to be running for office. And so you can find out about that at Sonia, S-O-N-J-A, 2018.org. Sonia, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.